Thank you, Dr. Matheny. There are some who would seek to pit Paul against Jesus, juxtaposing the words and ways of the former to the latter. George Bernard Shaw was one such person. In his essay entitled Preface on the Prospects of Christianity, Shaw, an Irish playwright, critic, and political activist of the 19th and 20th century asserts that Paul does nothing that Jesus would have done and says nothing that Jesus would have said. As it happens, uh, Jesus and Paul had far more in common than is sometimes imagined by Shaw and others. This includes their respective perspectives on the topic of Christian unity, which is the subject upon which I would like to focus this morning. Not only is Christian unity a matter of perennial importance, but it is also something that I've been given a fair bit of thought lately. It's my hope to devote our spring convocation address to our soon-to-be-revealed strategic plan, One Truit, and I gather that's what has me thinking so much about Christian unity these days, but each day has enough trouble of its own. The first of the three passages read by Dr. Matheny, who, as it happens, will be preaching in chapel later this term, is drawn from Jesus' so-called high priestly prayer in John 17. There, Jesus prays that future believers, including us, may be one, even as Jesus is one with the Father. I and them, and you and me, the Johannine Jesus prays, so that they may be brought to complete unity. An emphasis upon oneness and unity also shines through in our reading from 1 Corinthians. I gather that that might have been the message. Uh, that certainly was a wonderful way to tackle that text. Amid his instruction to an infighting, fractured fellowship regarding spiritual gifts, Paul employs the human body as an analogy. As with the human body, where there is unity and diversity, so also with the body of Christ. Paul propounds. By virtue of spirit baptism, Paul reckons Christ followers in Corinth and elsewhere, then and now, are formed into one body and are given one spirit to drink, be they Jew or Gentile, slave or free. You might have thought, well, Paul, you didn't finish the triad. Where's the male and female? Well, given the sexual confusion, among the Corinthians, as evidenced by 1 Corinthians 5 to 7, as well as 1 Corinthians 11, this comes, at least to me, as no great surprise. In the third text read in our hearing, the Ephesians and others who were and are addressed by this cyclical epistle are called to do their best to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. On the heels of the admonition, there follows a sevenfold affirmation of oneness in Christ, so as to signal completion. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called with one hope. There is one Lord, 
and one faith and one baptism and one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. If both Jesus and Paul thought and taught that unity among believers was foundational and lived and died unto that high and holy end, then we would be wise and would do well to ascertain what is meant by Christian unity and to live toward that good and godly end ourselves. Before reflecting briefly upon how we might attain unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace with respect to our life together here, suffer me a word or two regarding what unity is not. For starters, unity is not uniformity. Paul makes this vital point in a memorable, even comical way in 1 Corinthians 12, 15 to 20 when he writes, If the foot would say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. As with the human body and the body of Christ, there is to be unity and diversity, oneness, but not sameness. As it pertains to Truett, every member of our community matters. Whether you are a new or returning student, a faculty or staff member, a tenured track or tenured professor, a lecturer or endowed professor, a non-exempt or exempt employee, a Baptist or a Methodist, a master's or a doctoral student, a Houston or a San Antonio student, and so on. To be sure, there are differences among us, both in roles and responsibilities. But there need not, indeed there ought not, be discord nor disrespect, division, and certainly not derision. Secondly, it need be noted that even as unity is not uniformity, neither does unity require unanimity. When a vote is called for, unanimous votes can be wondrous. As it happens, and for the record, the Truett faculty is frequently able to achieve such unanimity. That being said, unanimity is not, a necess is not necessary or is not necessarily a prerequisite for unity. In the early church, upon reflection, there were any number of deep disagreements, not merely based on personalities or preferences, but on deep and abiding principles. One recalls, for example, the, quote, sharp disagreement, unquote, that arose between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark, as well as the acute conflict that occurred between Paul and Peter over eating with Gentiles. One can also recall the discord between Euodia and Suntuke of Philippians fame. Jesus' disciples could also get crosswise with one another on occasion. As things are, 
so they were. One of the more well-known episodes is when ten of the disciples became indignant with James and John for requesting of Jesus if they could sit on either side of him in glory. To be honest and to be sure, Christian unity, at least this side of eternity, while always desirable, is not always achievable. Sometimes the differences, disagreements, and discord are so acute, too acute, for oneness to be possible. All too frequently, however, unity is viewed as a Christian commodity instead of a Christian necessity. Lord, forgive us. Lord, forgive me. We should pray and ache for concord instead of conflict, reconciliation instead of rancor. We should seek to commune with one another and not to cancel one another. In order for Christian unity to become an ever-increasing rea reality, what is required? How can it be? It begins, I would contend, with a common confession. Near the outset of 1 Corinthians 12, where, as we have heard, Christian unity features, Paul maintains that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The declaration Jesus is Lord was one of, if not the foundational confessions of the earliest Christians and remains so even until now. To take but one additional New Testament example, Romans 10.9 states that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him out from among the dead, you will be saved. When I baptize, which is not as frequently as some of you might, I ask baptizens, what is your confession of faith? They in turn confess, Jesus is Lord. I then, upon their confession of faith, baptize them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, speaking over them as they are plunged into a watery grave. You are buried with Christ in baptism unto his death and raised to walk in newness of life. Philippians 2, 10-11 instructs that every knee should bend and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. For no one can lay any foundation than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. In addition to the confession, Jesus is Lord, there is doctrinal unity at Truett Seminary, though not absolute uniformity due to ecclesial and denominational differences and distinctives regarding other core Christian commitments. These are outlined in our Statement of Common Faith, which functions for our community as a confession and expression of basic doctrinal agreement. The topics taken up therein include Jesus Christ, God, humanity, redemption, salvation by grace, conver conversion, 
scripture and creeds, the church, Baptist distinctives, ordinances, sexuality and marriage, and the Lord's return and last things. Be assured, I'm not about to read it. First framed by now emeritus professor, Dr. Roger E. Olson, at the request of Truett's third dean, Dr. Paul W. Powell, this statement is not exhaustive. I could indicate how it's not, but that's not the point. But it is indicative of basic bedrock beliefs as a community of faith and learning. It guides us, even as it guards us. It might be helpful to say in passing here that the Baptist denominational distinctives espoused therein are held freely and generously by a majority of our faculty and, I might say, student body. But they are not regarded as essential for employment or enrollment at Truett Seminary. For my part, as a lifelong Baptist until now, I regard convictional congruence with respect to what C.S. Lewis once called the deep middle, or what to N.T. Wright refers as simply Christian. To be more important than all denominational distinctives, including our Baptist ones. If we were to ask the question, is true at a Baptist seminary, the answer would be yes, even as Baylor is a Baptist university. If one were to ask, is true at exclusively a Baptist seminary, the answer would be no, neither in the past nor in the present. In fact, as of yesterday, Dr. Rusty Freeman, director of Truett's Wesley House of Studies, informed me that there are now 75 students, roughly one-fifth of our overall student body, who are part of our Wesley House. So if you are one of these friends, hear us say, you are both wanted and welcomed here. The same is true for Christ followers from other Christian communions. If we are to attain unity, we must not only embrace a common confession and concomitant commitments, but we must also extend uncommon care, a common confession, and uncommon care. Some of us know David Horrell, who puts it this way, that we should be marked and animated by other regard, a perfectly British word. Returning to 1 Corinthians 12, Paul instructs in verses 24 to 26 that God has so arranged the body that there be no dissension within the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. Returning to Philippians 2 for a second, at the outset of that remarkable chapter of Scripture, Paul writes, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if any affection and compassion, if any fellowship in the Spirit, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each other regard one another as more important than oneself. Do not look out for your personal interests, but look out for the interests of others. 
have this habit of mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. This habit of mind is on full display in John 13, which is strategically placed before what we now call the upper room discourse, which concludes with Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. In John 13, in the middle of an evening meal with his disciples, Jesus gets up from the meal, disrobes himself, taking off his outer garment, wrapping a towel around his waist, and commences to wash and dry the disciples' feet. Such sacrificial service, born of considerateness and humility, continues to instruct and to inspire us. As we consider our common life at Truett, which we trust will be marked by uncommon care, we are guided in no small measure by a document entitled Vision for Life Together, drafted in large measure by the now Foy Valentine professor, Dr. Kimlin J. Bender. It, along with our statement of common faith, may be found in various places, including on Truett's website under the tab, What We Believe. If you've not read either or both of these documents lately, I encourage you to do so again. Truett's vision for life together, which is not meant to be employed as an instrument to ensure doctrinal uniformity, but as an expression of our shared aspirations and commitments for a common life, may be fairly described not only as theological, but also as doxological. Each of the five sections of the document commence with the phrase, we give thanks. Taken together, the five organizational headings of this common confession run as follows. We give thanks for the gift of salvation that God has accomplished for us in Jesus Christ, as witnessed and announced in Holy Scripture. We give thanks for the relations we share with others as fellow Christians with whom we are called to confess a common faith. We give thanks for the relations we share with others as neighbors with whom we are called to share a mutual love. We give thanks for the relations we share with others as friends and family members with whom we are called to embrace a shared hope. And we give thanks for our lives as embodied persons created by God, and set in the context of a good created order longing for its redemption. I, for one, am grateful for these commitments, which are appropriately elaborate, elaborated upon in the document. They both undergird and guide our common life as a seminary community that aspires to be a community which aims for both the highest reason, and the fullest faith. Faith seeking understanding. I would like to conclude this morning this address, which is focused upon Christian unity as envisioned by Jesus and Paul and appropriated, if imperfect, imperfectly, at Truett Seminary, with a simple invitation. It won't require you getting out of your seat and moving towards the front. Here's the invitation.
At the conclusion of this service, please join us for lunch in the Piper Great Hall. It's just right next door. If you did not register in advance for the meal, please linger at the back of the line until those who have registered have been served. If the past is any predictor of the present, there will likely be plenty. The only agenda item for our luncheon today is to enjoy table fellowship with one another. If it was good enough for the earliest Christ followers, it is good enough for us. After everyone has been served and has had some time to eat, we will offer a blessing and then devote a few minutes to a large group conversation. For those of you who may be concerned about your one o'clock class, a 1245 dismissal will allow for you to get there in good time. My hope is that such fellowship will help to facilitate Christian friendship and unity among this community and family that we call Truett Seminary, of which we're all a part and for which we may all be most grateful. Would you mind to pray with me? Bind us together, Lord, bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together. Lord, bind us together. Bind us together in love. Through the one who demonstrated his own love towards us and that while we were still rebels, he died for us. Even Christ our Lord. Amen.